Welcome to the Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real-world guide to real estate investment and property management. In this episode, we'll be talking about forbearance, what it is, and how it is impacting the marketplace. In another segment, we'll be talking about construction costs. Why has lumber gone up in price, and what are the long-term effects on its overall price? We'll also discuss ways in which construction in the United States may need to change. In this segment, we're going to be talking about the forbearance program, the the foreclosure crisis that is inevitably facing Americans, that it's going to be uh, beginning here, actually in two days, when the foreclosure moratorium ends on federally backed mortgages. Let's be clear about that. It's federally backed mortgages. If you've, if you've got a conventional mortgage with a lender, um, you probably didn't receive any benefit from the government's moratorium because those conventional loans and those lenders can do whatever they want to do. But if your loan is backed by the U.S. government and the taxpayers, uh, we say U.S. government as if they are the taxpayers. Actually, your, your loan's insured by me, Glenn, Richard, and everybody else in America that pays taxes. Um, and if it is underneath that program, then you have a moratorium where they cannot foreclose on you for any circumstance, doesn't matter why, uh, until after July 31st. Um, then after September 30th, the forbearance programs end, and we're going to get into that and talk about forbearances and what those are and how that will impact the foreclosure crisis that's coming. Um, now, I say crisis. This is not 2008. I believe at the end of the day, you're going to have about 3% of mortgage holders, maybe 35 um facing foreclosure and the majority of those will be able to pull themselves out of it back in uh, the crash of 08 you had tens of millions of people in foreclosure and their homes were upside down in value so we're nowhere near 2008 2009 so anybody listening here don't panic not only that but the banks learned a lot about how to handle these uh, situations with loan modification short sales etc um they learned a lot about that back in 08, 09, up through, you know, 12 and 13. So those programs are going to be a lot smoother than they were. You and I used to fight that battle every day. Yeah. And for those investors that are listening and you're, you're, you're mouse watering because you're thinking, oh, here we go. We're going to have a foreclosure crisis. We're going to be buying houses, pennies on a dollar. Remember, the housing market is up 24 almost 24 percent yeah right since since this uh they expected a crash this year everybody expected a crash i remember one specific genius real estate agent locally here in memphis who said no it's not gonna crash it's gonna go the opposite direction and it did it did exactly what i thought it would do because it must have been me uh, yeah i I don't know anybody (laughs) like that do you Uh, that's because you're from you're from britain there are no people like that because i'm just saying i don't know (laughs) so um but yeah, so I went the opposite direction. There's a there's a very variating list of factors that caused that issue, caused the the growth, and there's different opinions about it. But at the end of the day, it went up 24. percent So when the foreclosure process begins on a lot of these homeowners, there's the topic that or the argument that they're just going to put it on the market. They've got now with the increase of 24. percent If you have a 200 thousand dollar house. 
that you bought and have a mortgage on, your house is worth 240 250 now. So you've got equity. So they'll throw it on the market and sell it for 235 quickly to get out of it and pay the bank off and, and scave off foreclosure. Because listen, when the foreclosure clock starts ticking, the bank doesn't care if you have a buyer. Because they can take that home in the courthouse steps, sell it tomorrow, get all their money, plus make money. I know they claim they can't make money, but they're going to charge you uh, legal fees, late fees, uh, um, uh, processing fees, foreclosure fees, and they will eat up every dime uh, of the potential equity. And it'll go in the coffers of Bank of America or Citibank or whoever it is. It's not that they're going to return it. The only thing, if they sell that house for $149,000 and you owe $148,000, and by law, they're required to return that $1,000 to you because they've covered their costs, recouped their money. But the banks, there's not a, no way to put it. They, listen, there are a lot of shady lenders out there, and they find ways to nickel and dime you to death and steal your money yes. when they foreclose on you. So Sometimes they just outright break the law. They do. And they we do. caught them doing we that. We challenged them many times than, in court yeah, for that. Yeah. And we won a bunch of those. We lost some, but we won those. Um, so when it, when this foreclosure crisis happens, or I was, I, well, let me quit using crisis. When it happens, Glenn, it's not going to be nearly as big as it was in 2008, but we are going to have foreclosures that are going to be happening. It's going to, it's inevitable. So what is your prediction as to how that's going to impact the market? To me, not much. I mean, I don't see it impacting it whatsoever. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, there's just not enough of a mountain. Everybody wants to compare 2008 to now. The experts. But I'm telling do. you, this is this is no comparison nah. at all. I mean, 08 was the bottom of the barrel kind of fallout. It was like, and we've discussed what caused that. We what caused that is that 80 percent of Americans had a government backed mortgage and. Probably half of those people were given a mortgage simply because they had a pulse. And that is, that's our government's fault. They created that monster and it eventually came home. And more than likely, we'll be doomed to repeat it, but that's not going to be in our no. generation. So, you know, so my, opi- my opinion is that this, this foreclosure issue is going to create some opportunity for some investors, maybe some guys that want to buy and flip property. I don't see us getting into a crash. I don't see us getting into a market that's going to take a deep dive. We may have a correction, 8%, 5%, 4%, whatever it's going to be. But at the end of the day, our, I think our market's going to stay stable. And I believe the correction is going to come from these homeowners or banks that are foreclosing on property when they launch them off the courthouse steps. See, the sad truth of it is when, you, when, when people evaluate property and its price – foreclosures and all of that is included in that so if you have three foreclosures in your neighborhood and your house is worth 300,000 but those three sold for 250 on courthouse steps you've your value has now dropped because you have a comparable that is well, that was value. one of the worst things about the 08 uh, yeah. recession was the fact that you had people that woke up and had lost 40% of the value in their in their home and they were working yeah, and they were paying and they were their working. mortgage, yeah. but they lost value simply because everyone else went under. Um, so, you know, my opinion is I think the market's going to stay strong as long as people continue buying. Interest rates are going to stay low. Um, well, the Fed's going to keep them down there. Well, they have no choice. If they raise if they raise interest rates now, this so-called inflation um, is going to get so out of control that it would crush the average American into poverty. 
um, it would just destroy everything. So, well, that's how it impacts our investors because if you have investors wanting to do flips, the cost of construction materials to do a rehab is has gone up probably forty percent. Yeah, and so when you factor that into a flip. If you can't get it for the right price, there's no sense in doing it. And if the the admin then if the admin then jacks up the the capital gains tax, then that's really going to kill. But that's good for us because we can we compete against flippers all day long trying to pick up property that we're trying to get. Now there's there's also a flip side to this that you know a lot of investors need to pay attention to. Um, you know, not just lumber is an issue, but materials across the board. Sheetrock, shingles. Gone up. So you've got a yeah. home today. You're renting for nine fifty a month, and tenant vacates come September, and you're going to rent ready it and put it back in the market. Be prepared for your cost to go up four or five percent, or maybe eight percent to turn that house. There's a shortage of lumber, and we'll get into that article here. But Richard sent. I don't know if you saw the email from Richard, but he sent an email saying got wood. I was like, wow, our British friend's finally coming out of the closet. But let's not get off track. I, I want to continue down this path of the of the what a forbearance plan is. So let's talk about a forbearance plan. Forbearance plan is where you go to your bank and say, "Hey, I cannot pay my mortgage. I'm three months behind, but in two months I'll be back working and I should be able to get caught up." So what the bank does is take your your past due amount and they just throw it up on a shelf and it's no longer due temporarily for however long that forbearance contract lasts six months, twelve months. Two years, whatever it is, into the loan. Could now, be the, anything. a lot of people jump into that out of desperation and don't really think about the what's coming because there is a day coming when your contract expires. The bank's going to send you a letter saying, "Okay, you owe us seven thousand dollars. You have until this date to clear this matter up, or we begin foreclosure." Um, then, once you go back to the bank to try and renegotiate that, or maybe work out some kind of a payment plan, and they will, they'll work out payment plans with you. In some cases. But if there's a lot of equity in your home and there's already a lot of cost that is piled up, you know, I don't know how they're going to handle that. I don't know if the banks are going to want to work with them because I'm telling you, the, the lenders can make profit from foreclosure. I know they claim they can't and they claim that it's a, it's detrimental, but Glenn and I watched <laughs> screw people completely over. Oh, yes. Because Absolutely. there was an ability for yeah. them to make money. During the worst time of the crisis, <laughs> turned was a one point something billion dollars in revenue that year. And if you, I, I will assume that most of that was from all these different fees and garbage they picked up to the, in the foreclosures that they conducted. Um, we watched them purposely try to put people out of their house because there was an ability for them to, te- to sell that house and make some additional cash. Well, if somebody comes to you and says, I want to sell you this note, it's 150, we're going to give it, we're, we're going to sell it to you for 75,000. Okay, but the place is worth one fifty, and you're like, okay, I'll take that. And so you buy the paper, and then you turn around and start foreclosure proceedings against the owner because the original note is what you get back, so you can profit. But you buy, like you said, one hundred fifty thousand dollars mortgage. You buy for seventy five grand. Well, guess what? You're owed one fifty on paper, so therefore you can sell it for one fifty and make seventy five grand. So this garbage of the banks, you know, they're all about the the homeowner and the people. That's complete garbage. They're all about money. They they have a license to steal from you. Now, I'm not saying that's all banks. 
we dealt with some very good banks, <clears throat> very good lenders that were very cooperative and worked with our homeowners. But your big ones, they robbed people blind. And we sat there and watched. we had we sat there and saw some that went to, to jail. Taylor Bean and Whitaker. Yep. Yep. Taylor Bean and Whitaker took tarp money, illegally funneled funneled it off. Okay, so they kept the proceeds from that. They ended up going under. Uh, Bank of America bought their assets for fifty cents on the dollar, mm-hmm. which was my first case because it was an old man that owned a farm down in Mississippi, and when he was paying his money to Taylor Bean and Whitaker. And so when they went under, his auto draft got cut off. So all of a sudden, he's not paying his mortgage anymore. Hey, he doesn't know it. You know? So that was my first case. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the forbearance issue is going to come. Those chickens are coming home to roost uh, here in the next 60 days. <laughs> and that's going to create foreclosure problems or foreclosure issues for some homeowners. I would like to think that... Uh, the lenders learned a, a a valuable lesson during the crash in 08 and 09. Um, but unfortunately, I believe the greed of those those lenders uh, supersedes common sense and doing the right thing. So I, I still think we're going to have a, a good number of foreclosures coming. And there's going to be some homeowners in crisis, and there's going to be some – uh, some adjustment of the market because of that. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to stabilize the end of this uh, middle 2022, 20, end of 2022. And then in 2023, we'll watch uh, lumber prices and, and materials start coming down and we'll get back to what we th- some kind of a normalcy in the housing market. But between now and then, if you're an investor, buy, 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 buy. Here's how, here's how the, the law, this is what the law allows a bank to do. So if forbearance ends, let's say our forbearance ends, I'm on one and it ends July 31st. The bank's got to send me a notice that I have 30 days to pay this balance. So that puts me into August 31st. Uh, I don't pay it. Then they send me a notice that I'm in default. And they give us, they give you, I think it's 30 days to, to rectify the problem or they begin foreclosure proceedings. Then they have to send you a notice of right to foreclose, which is another 60-day window. So I'm guessing probably February, March of next year is when you'll see the bulk of properties are going to be foreclosed on at the courthouse steps. Uh, if they hire themselves a decent attorney or a couple of good negotiators, it could drag out to summer. I mean, hell, I had one house I drug out for five years. Down in Florida on a on a, on a golf well. course, <laughs> I did as well. so you can drag it out. But I, I would think the most of this will be settled by summer of next year, and then I think when that's done, I think we'll we'll see a kind of a leveling off of the market. For the benefit of the listeners, could you tell us what it is you used to do, and some examples of what what you did? So, what was your official title? I moved up after Katrina. I ended up linking up with attorney Leonard Van Eaton and his son Chris Van Eaton, who brought me in because I'd I'd done a ton of short sales on my own buying and selling of real estate. You know, I would find people in foreclosure. I would go to the bank, make the bank an offer, buy, negotiate the short sale, and then I would put the previous homeowner back in as one of my tenants and give them 12 months. To either show you can keep the house or not. And then I would sell it back to them or I'd keep it as a rental and they could stay there forever as long as they paid on time. In retrospect, that was a dumb idea because I, I ended up evicting most of them because they couldn't pay for it to begin with. But I was buying real estate left and right. I ended up, we ended up at 40 houses in New Orleans uh, in, in just under a year doing this process. 
But that led me to, when I got to Memphis, it led me to their office to to help them deal with the short sale crisis because they had a title company. That title company went from doing 30, 40 closings a month to doing like three because nobody was nobody was selling homes and you couldn't you couldn't sell them no one knew how to do a short sale so agents were frustrated people were dropping their licenses and getting out of the business and going back to work somewhere else um but that was right up my alley so we i started a process calling banks and doing short sales for agents to produce closings for title assurance and negotiate and glenn was with orion packaging is he ran a couple of plants for them and he retired walked him office one day his flip-flops and backpack goes man i'm bored can i help you do anything and that was it he was there every day since so we went through a process where investors would come to us that have seven eight properties um homeowners would come to us in foreclosure any anybody that was in trouble with their mortgage we understood the mortgage law we understood the foreclosure law. We understood every bit of it. We could actually assist them in either saving their home, restructuring their loan. Um, I helped a lot of investors walk away from uh, seven, eight, nine, ten mortgages with no recourse. It, it hurt their credit, but they had no recourse. They walked away. They, the, the debt they owed. I did a deal for, uh, I'll say Mark Gasol was the buyer. I won't tell you who the seller was because he was in financial trouble. He was an ex-NBA player, and he had $1.2 million. We sold the house to Mark Gasol for 600000 and the bank let the guy in foreclosure walk away from $600,000. And he was still playing ball at the time. The, the kid made $250,000 every two weeks, but let him walk away from $650,000. That's how good I was. Actually, I was shocked they did that. Anyway, but that's what we did. We helped anybody that was I in trouble. I think we need verification of that. <laughs> I can give you his number if you want to call him. I still got it. Um, Let's get him get him on the next show. Yeah, we'll we verify that. He's he's now out of the NBA. So that's all we did, and that's we have we have a level of expertise in that field. Not because we're geniuses or we were trained to do it, because of what we went through for three years doing it. You know, it was a lot of trial and error. Uh, we got to the point where we would send out a letter to another to an attorney, and their first response was like crap because they knew, right? We're going to wear them out. We're going to hit you every day with something in the mail. We're going to file this and file that, and we're going to wear you down to where you're just going to tell us what do you want. They'd come to us and say, all right, what do you want? Well, modify the loan, and we'll walk away. And they'd modify the loan, or they'd bring the homeowner current. They'd forbear. They'd do something and save the home. The, the smarter ones would – there would be somebody in that office I could call. And I could get their get them on the line, and they would work with me. the The dumb ones were the ones that would say, "Well, screw you, just sue me," and we go, "Okay." <laughs> that doesn't take a lot of work. To There's an attorney not far from here, which yeah. said that to me on the phone. And you know, what we did we sued him. And a month later, he's calling me, "Man, can you get me, let me out of this suit? Can you can you just drop me out of it?" And I'm like, "No, nope. you said sue you, so guess what? You're sued <laughs> and screwed." <laughs> and I had so anyway. many of them tell me. You can't do that. You're not an attorney. I'd say I can do anything I want if I have authorization from a client, except for litigating in court. Yep. I can't do that. That's the only thing I can do. That was Leonard's job. Yep. So anyway, that's what we did. So when we talk about these things, we understand them. We do. And we've seen the the dark and nasty side of the lenders. You know, they're not this sunny rosy commercial you see on tv with you know a lady in a sundress skipping through the fields saying i just got a mortgage i love my bank no they're not they're 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 truly wolves in sheep's clothing 
and they're designed, their whole system's designed to make money off of you yes. any way they possibly can. And yes. even if that means bending the rules, if a lender forecloses on you and they charge you $20,000 in fees and blah, 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 those, a lot of those loans have mortgage insurance on them, which covers up to 20% of the equity of the property, right? Or the loan. So not only do they get their money back, they also can file an insurance claim for other losses and have the PMI pay them for that. So uh, I would challenge any banker, if there's a banker out there listening, to call this, just call me, look me up online, get my cell phone, call me. I won't give it out publicly. And if you're willing to come on this show and explain to me how a lender isn't designed just to make money off the backs of those that are in distress. I mean, look at your look at your your NSF fees with banks. Who do they hit? The guy that doesn't have any money. The guy's got ten bucks in his account, spends fifty because he's out of gas, and boom! Next thing you know, he's one hundred eighty bucks in the hole. They don't do that to guys that got cash in the bank. They don't, you know. NSF is no strings financing, right? Correct. <laughs> exactly. No strings financing. You're better off going to a payday loan company than hitting thirty five bucks a charge. So so yeah, so when you look at the the forbearance here and the the ending, the foreclosure uh, moratorium ending, we're gonna have some issues, but they're nowhere near gonna be close to two thousand eight. It's just not it's, gonna there's be there's not any comparison to two thousand eight. Right. Two thousand eight was such an anomaly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we created it, right? Sure. But what's happening now is nothing like 08. So just to add in some interesting facts, as of July 11th, 2021, there are still 1.75 million borrowers, which is approximately 3.5% of U.S. mortgages enrolled in a forbearance program. Right. And Does I will tell you. Does that sound bad to you? No, not not considering. Three and a half percent? In 2008, you had tens of millions of people, right? You're talking three, three and a half percent of the population. Um, and compared to, you know, you got, what does it say? Three, 1.75, 1.7 million versus 10 million or 11 million. That's a big difference. That's not big enough to hurt or crush the housing market. Um. Some areas maybe it hit hit harder, like Memphis may have a slew of foreclosures. Um, uh, Atlanta, there's certain areas that during the 08 crisis got hit the hardest. Um, but I don't, I just don't see it as a as a real estate ending catastrophe as people predicted. I mean, I know we had investors telling us, "Oh, the experts are saying we're headed for a huge crash, and I'm going to sit on my money and wait until the market crashes, and I'm going to swoop in and buy up everything I can." And four months later, they're calling me going, um, can I buy something? I'm like, I don't know how much money you got because you're now 10%, 15% higher than you were six months ago. Obviously, you know, everyone knows that prices are dictated by supply and demand. If there's more demand than there is supply, prices jump. And when it goes the other way, prices drop. Uh, basic economics. The issue that I got from reading this article on um, um, regarding lumber shortages or l- lumber prices, I thought it was interesting for the for the explanation of why there's a shortage is that there's a shortage of lumber because there was a prediction that we're going to have a housing market crisis, which then was going to slow down builders. It was going to slow down development. Then COVID hit, and you had mills that had. Uh, fewer employees but they didn't care because their business was slowing down so they thought then all of a sudden the reality sets in and the housing market takes off and we explained 
I think we explained very well why that took off. So when that took off, now all of a sudden you've got, uh, well, during COVID, you had homeowners that were stuck at home. So you got guys out there going to Home Depot, buying lumber, building clubhouses and she sheds and, uh, you know, doing projects around the house, which created a shortage of lumber temporarily. Then as the lumber mills tried to crank up to get caught up, the building season kicked in and builders started buying in quantity and therefore they were never able to get caught up. So the supply has remained steadily short, uh, which has now driven up prices. Do you agree? I agree. I mean, we've been talking about this for a few months now. Um, if you're coming in to do a flip and where you had like 20% margin, mm-hmm. okay, now all of a sudden your construction costs are greater than they were and now you got to push that top line up right so you got to sell the property for more than you expected or you got to save costs somewhere by reducing your cost on the rehab so yeah i agree well the the lumber issue is a problem it's not an economy crushing issue um, it's going to slow down the building of affordable housing. You're going to see just mainly what you're going to see is a lot of custom building. People yeah. who can afford to pay for the lumber, it doesn't matter. Who can pay eighty grand for a lumber package when it used to be sixty? <clears throat> but I think where we're going to feel an issue is in which is good for us and good for investors, which is going to be in the affordable housing new build. In other words, a little 12 to 1400 square foot homes that are very popular that 80% of people, at least in this area, buy into. Uh, we're going to watch a drop off of that because the margins are so slim, you can't make money building those types of homes. The only way you make money is building a custom cost plus job for you know the doctor down the street or... Uh, the lawyer who lives, you know, out in in uh, Oakland. Do you think that'll create a housing shortage for the average American? And do you think that'll give us a resurgence of buy and flip and rehab and rent? If you go back to the '80s, when they were putting Cracker Jack boxes up in Cordova, mm-hmm. um, everything was affordable. Now there's no way to make entry-level affordable housing unless it's an alternative, such as your tiny homes and your containers and the prefabs. Yep. But unfortunately, a lot of municipalities and and counties don't allow. They've never never approved those to be built. But maybe that'll drive that thinking outside. I used to be in small town government, and I can tell you that if the idea can go before the planning commission and council today, it'll be 20, 28, 29 before their study is done to determine if it would be effective or not. So I don't see that changing. So we may end up with a housing shortage for new affordable housing, brand new build affordable housing, which is good because that then pushes builders. And what happened when the moratorium set in in Shelby County on new builds? All the builders went in and started buying up older homes, rehabbing them, flipping them, right? Yep. That then caused a resurgence in the the older home market and the rental market. Yep. So it may not be a bad thing if that happens. It's just going to put – it's going to force people to think outside the box when they want to buy their first home. I'm going to buy this 1979 home in East Memphis instead of buying this brand-new home built in Oakland. And that may be the, the, end, the end result of that. Well, the article says that they expect prices to stay high 
they expect them to stabilize this year, the end of this year, and then stay where they are until about 2023 and begin to come down. Is that, What I didn't get from the article, is that because they're assuming at that point the supply and demand will kind of catch up with each other and not just a sawmill scale up, but all of a sudden if you're going from – if you're a small mill and there's one out by our boat, um, I forgot the name of the company, but they're running 100 – lumber trucks a day down that highway going out to the mill so and all of a sudden your your capacity increases 20 percent. now you've got to find you know 20 percent more truck drivers vehicles loaders uh guys that actually cut the trees trim them and load them on drivers to bring them there so yeah i can see that it probably takes four or five months to ramp up production at a facility, you can you can set the mill up probably to in twenty you know three weeks to run more, but you still got your logistics of getting it to that place is probably the hangup. So that that does make sense, which may be the reason why they're saying, look, we're going to level off this year. The sawmills will kind of get caught up, and the prices will stay up for a little bit until they can recuperate some of the the losses that they may have incurred early on, and then as it as we get into twenty twenty three, it begins to come down, and we kill those beetles, whatever they are. Those British beetles. They're pine beetles. Oh, I thought you said British beetles. They come from the land Damn of pine. Damn Brits, man. Damn Brits. They're Start from everything. Liverpool. Liverpool, yeah. The what? The pine beetles are. Yeah. They're from Liverpool. Figures. Figures. Yeah. <laughs> I think where where construction in the United States needs to shift is it may need to look at new technologies. Sure. Particularly some of these technologies that are being used over in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, like modular style homes. You mean stick and mud? Very. The, the modular and... There's do a, they do a lot of that there? Yeah. Sticks and mud. No. <laughs> no I think you're thinking of Wales. <laughs> they've been doing modular over in Germany for freaking... Have they really? 20 plus and we met with a, Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we met with a guy yesterday who was talking about them, and he said they're they're... They're rated higher than block homes for hurricanes yeah. and tornadoes and all that. Correct. So there's a there's a company out in Poland that I know of that you can design everything and it's all prefabbed in the factory. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're an American listener, prefab sounds like a negative. And when I first heard it, I thought, Oh Unless no! Unless you say double wide, what's that <laughs> going to look like? Say double wide prefab. Now we're talking. But this is this is spectacular engineering. Everything is pre-wired, yeah, pre-plumbed, and it comes in sections. I've you, seen the the properties, and they are. I mean, listen, the, the people's stigma about prefab is back in the late '80s, early '90s when they first came out. Yeah, you should, they just put up boxes, you know, and they were all just they look like I, I don't even know what to describe. They, they were they were garbage, and when the wind blew, they'd fall over. But uh, the prehab, the prefab business pretty much caught hold down in florida after hurricane andrew and that's when they started building these really strong structures that they could pretty much lag bolt together and strap them to the ground and they're not going anywhere you're gonna lose your windows but your walls are gonna stay up and and let's not forget about container homes built out of shipping containers yes glenn and i are experimenting with something right now we're working on a project we'll we'll divulge that to the to the listeners we'll tell you more down about it as we move down the road yeah yeah Thank you for listening to Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real-world guide to real estate investment and property management. Be sure to subscribe at BehindTheCurtainPodcast.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Enterprise Property Management's real estate services, please visit us on the web at epmrealestate.com. This has been a Sound Ideas Group production for Enterprise Property Management, Inc.